Hey guys, welcome to another edition of the Filming with Josh podcast. I'm your host, Joshua Milligan, and this is episode number 42, 10 Things I Wish I Would Have Known When Starting a Video Business. This is the Filming with Josh podcast, brought to you by Rustic River Media. Welcome to the videographer's home for tips, tricks, and how to make flicks. Welcome back, everyone, to the Filming with Josh podcast. And for those of you who are new to the Filming with Josh podcast, I want to thank you for joining today. You are new to the Filming with Josh podcast. This is a podcast where we cover basically all things video, whether it's uh, equipment or storyboarding or how to start a business in the video world or how to price a project or contracts or anything like that. We cover it all on this podcast. And if you are new to Filming with Josh, I also want to encourage you to go to Facebook and type in Filming with Josh. And there you will find a group, the Filming with Josh Facebook group. Ask to join the group and I'll be sure to accept it as soon as I see your request. And that group is a continuation of this podcast where essentially uh, people come in and they ask questions or um, I'll post about a topic and we'll, we'll discuss all things video So join that group, be a part of a growing group that was going to be at over 700 members before we, um, before the end of the month, hopefully. And I'd love to see you there to come on and be a part and to join our conversations. Um, And I also want to mention that uh, recently on my website, we added a new tab called the Filming with Josh tab. If you go to my website, that is www.rusticriver.media and Up in the top right-hand corner, you will see a tab that says Filming with Josh. And if you put your mouse on that tab, a drop-down menu will appear. And on that menu, you'll see um, the options to look at blogs or podcasts or vlogs. And that is just a basically a one-stop shop to go and find articles I've written or uh, podcasts, episodes, or um, vlogs that I've done about different topics Um, that have to do with video. I haven't written um, blogs in a little while. I've written a bunch of them, and the ones I have written are all there, but I haven't added any in a while, uh, and nor have I added any vlogs in a while, and that's mainly because I I was waiting for my website to get revamped so that I could have one place to put it all, and uh, my website has recently um, been worked on. It is not uh, completed yet. We are still making some changes, but um, all of that content is there now. So if you go to, again, rusticriver.media and you'll see Filming with Josh in the top right-hand corner, and there you can find the vlogs, the podcast, and the written blogs to learn more about video and the business that goes with it. Today's episode is number 42, and it is 10 things I wish I would have known when starting a video business. If I could go back in time about 10, 11 or so years ago when I was getting into video, uh, these are things that I would have told myself so that I would know these things when I was getting started. Um, These are not in any particular order. They are just written down as they came to me. Um, But I'll go ahead and start with number one, and that is that gear doesn't matter as much as knowledge and skill. I remember when I was about two or three years into the video business, I had bought a bunch of stuff. Back then, GoPros were still really new and there wasn't uh, really any commercial or consumer drones available yet. Um, 
And on top of that, gimbals weren't really a thing. So there wasn't as much tech as there is today in terms of things that um, someone like me would buy. Uh, but there were other things. There were uh, sliders and jibs and uh, DSLR cameras were becoming a thing back then. And I wanted to have as much of that stuff as I could because I told myself if I had a jib, if I had a slider, if only I had multiple DSLR cameras, if only I had this one lens, um, then think about what I could do with it all. And so I had bought a ton of stuff. <laughs> and I remember, I remember about two or three years into my business, I had acquired quite a bit of stuff and I ran into, and this happened on two separate occasions, but I ran into a couple of individuals separately on separate occasions that didn't have a fraction of the gear that I had, but they were head and shoulders above me in terms of their capabilities. They were way better than I was. And they were, they were creating better content with way less stuff. And what it really amounted to was rather than buy a bunch of things, they learn the craft. And I wish, I wish I would have done that. Now, after that, after those experiences, uh, it really hit home with me. And I had to be honest with myself because I was like, man, and that's hard to do, right? To sit there and be like, man, those guys are better than me. I mean, you don't, you don't want to say that, uh, but they are, they're, they were, they were better than me. You know, they're better than me. I mean, there's just no way around it. And I was like, you know, what is it that makes them better than me? You know, they don't have half the stuff I have. Why are they able to do these kinds of things? And, and really what it amounted to was they had taken the time to really learn the craft. They learned storyboarding and they had learned uh, sound design and they had learned lighting and why lighting was so crucial to video. And they had learned how to uh, decorate a set and how to... Um, just basically how to capture a story or display or convey a message through what equipment they did have um, so much better than me because because the, they knew they knew the craft and I had done the opposite I had learned some things but I bought all this gear thinking the gear was what was going to allow me to be able to um, make good video but really at the end of the day the gear wasn't near as important as just understanding the craft so my, my first item is, is gear doesn't matter as much as knowledge and skill. And I feel like that is a very important thing uh, to anyone who's getting started in video, whether you want to make a living at it or whether you just want to do it for fun. Just understand that learning the craft makes so such a bigger difference, so much more of a difference than than getting a bunch of gear. You can go out and buy gear and gear will help you. Like having a slider or a drone or a gimbal or, you know, that 7200 2.8 you've been keeping your eye on, those things come into play and can definitely help you do things. Uh, but if you know the craft, you can do so much more with so much less. Um, and so I wanna encourage anybody who's getting into video to learn things or to focus on learning things like storyboarding and um, sound design and uh, set design and um, all of those types of things that are more about the craft and less about the gear. Because if you learn those things first and you truly understand video production and you truly understand editing and storyboarding and all those little things, 
then when you do go to buy the gear, number one, you'll buy the right gear because you'll know what you need because you understand the craft. And number two, when you do buy the gear and you combine that gear with, with the craft, your knowledge of the craft, you will be so much better than most people out there. So if you want, if you really want to grow in video, put your, put your time and energy in learning the craft, save your money and get the gear later. And really, and truly like that, that is, I said, I said when I started this, that there is no particular order, but if I was to pick something on this list to be number one, uh, it would be this. Cause I do think that that is the number one thing I would tell myself, um, when I was getting started, if I could go back in time. Number two is there's no such thing as the best camera, only the right camera. I, a lot of times will get messages in Facebook or, or from text messages from people I know that will be like, Hey, what's the best camera for the money? Or what's the best camera I can get? Um, I see that all the time. I get that message all the time. And I myself asked that same question when I was getting into video, I wanted to have the best camera or at least the best camera for the money that I had. But the reality is there is no such thing as the best camera, only the right camera. There are a variety of different types of cameras out there for a reason. For example, there are um, a, a lot of dock shooters out there that are still shooting on three chip video cameras with a built-in servo zoom. And for them, that is the right tool for the job because they're maybe they're shooting by themselves or they're shooting on a really small crew and they don't have time to change lenses and they need to be able to have a variety of focal lengths all built in so they can zoom in or out on the fly. And maybe they need something that's kind of compact and packable that shoots to affordable media and that has built-in ND filters and built-in audio options or audio inputs. And for them, a three-chip video camera with a built-in servo zoom is probably the right tool for the job. Uh, and likewise, in the opposite end of the spectrum, you might have someone who's into shooting weddings where a three-chip video camera would probably be the wrong tool for the job, unless this was back in the 90s. <laughs> but if you want to be able to compete in the today's wedding market, you're probably best off with a small, compact, portable, easy-to-shoot-on mirrorless camera, something that can produce a bang-up image with a small package, something you can put on a, a gimbal and a slider, um, maybe if you're if you're doing some higher end weddings, you might fly your mirrorless camera on a drone. Something that can you can change lenses on to have um, different looks and different things from macro to uh, really low f stops. You know, there's there's all kinds of different options when working with a mirrorless camera that might make it the better tool for someone who's shooting weddings. And then you've got, on the other end of the spectrum, you've got guys that might be working with a crew who that might be best off with something like an Arri Alexa Mini or uh, a Panasonic Vericam LT or maybe a, a Red Monstro. And they might have a crew that consists of a, of a focus puller and a set designer and an audio crew and a lighting crew and... Uh, director and all these other people that are helping them with the job. And so maybe the right tool for them is to have a modular camera that has a variety of options available from different frame rates to, to different uh, resolutions and raw codecs and stuff like that. It all just depends on 
what it is you're doing and what it is you want to do. Um, so don't don't go into video thinking that um, you have to find the best camera or at least the best camera for your budget. What you really should be looking for is the right camera. And that's something I would have told myself back when I was getting started because I put a lot of money into what I would con- I would say were the wrong cameras for me. But I, I did that back then because I thought they were the best cameras. And I was <laughs> making life harder on myself because I was shooting really with the wrong tool. Um, and I, I got the job done, but half the time I wanted to throw my gear off a mountain because it just wasn't the right tool for the job. And so when, when, I, when I think about video today and I'm buying cameras today, I'm looking not for what's the best camera. And I'm not even looking for any particular brand. I'm a Sony shooter, but you know I could change Canon or Panasonic or whatever. It doesn't matter to me. I'm not a brand guy. I just buy what's the right camera for the job uh, or for the types of jobs that I do. And that's what you should do too. So um, for anyone who's getting into video, like don't feel like you have to, you have to find the best camera. Just look for the right camera um, because that that's the tool that you need. The third thing that I wish I would have known is that lighting makes the biggest difference in how, in how an image looks. I see myself and I remember back in the day, me really wanting to shoot in raw and really wanting a camera that was awesome and dynamic range and had the greatest color science because to me that was how you achieved a really good image if you had a high dynamic range and amazing color science built into the camera and you know if the the camera could shoot in raw so i could really work on the image in post i felt like those were the things that would allow me to really take my 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 projects to the next level. And this kind of goes back to my first thing, which is gear doesn't matter as much as knowledge and skill. Because in reality, um, if you know the craft, if you truly understand the craft, you know that lighting matters way more (laughs) than if you're shooting in RAW or if you have a camera that's got the highest dynamic range available. You know, those things don't matter near as much as how you light something. Lighting is everything. A lot of people, and, and, and count me in this category, because when I was getting started, this was me too. I used to think that lighting was only there so you could add light when it's dark out or into a dark room. <laughs> when I was getting started, that was my idea of lighting. And I bought a three-point lighting kit and I would use it just to kind of add light to stuff. <clears throat> I didn't realize back then that lighting is kind of like a paintbrush. Lighting Lighting is how you create shadow. It's how you create. Um, it's how you create depth. Did you know that lighting even creates sharpness? Literally, lighting creates sharpness. If you have, if you have too much light, or you're shooting uh, and trying to light up every single thing, and there's you're trying to eliminate shadow, you're actually taking away sharpness. You're making the image flat, and you're taking away depth. You know what? Because what sharpness? You may not understand this because I didn't. But sharpness is actually. Uh, it's actually contrast. Contrast is sharpness. When you have a lens that's really sharp, it's because the lens is able to 
really see the micro, that's why they call it micro contrast. It's really able to see the difference between an error, an edge that's bright and an edge that's dark. And so it can actually, even on things like eyelashes and stuff, what you're actually seeing there is contrast. And that contrast is sharpness. And lighting creates natural sharpness. And so when you when you understand that, you understand how important lighting is because I could shoot with the sharpest lens in the on the planet and still have a soft looking image if there's if I'm not lighting it in a way that uh, allows for there to be some sort of natural sharpness. Um, so lighting, lighting is huge. Lighting is color. Like lighting is 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 literally color. You may not think that because I didn't used to think that. I thought color was your picture profile and what you did in post. But <laughs> I, I've, I've shot projects like music videos where people asked me if I shot them on a red. And reality was, no, I shot it on a, back then I shot it on a Sony like, I think A7 III and A7R III. Uh, but the reason why there was so much color and the reason why there was uh, so much uh, pop on the skin tones and things like that was because of the way we lit it. We used gels and mixed colored lighting and we created depth with our lighting. We created color with our lighting and it really brought the images to life. And I had to do hardly any color grading in post because it was all done in the field. And it just popped, just absolutely popped. I shot it in log, dropped the correction LUT, and I was like, man, looks good to me. <laughs> Didn't do anything else to it because, because I, I painted the image, me and a set designer, we painted the, ima the, the image in the field using lights. So lighting makes the biggest difference in how an image looks because at the end of the day, when you are filming something, what you are doing is you are capturing light. And all the different colors and things that you are capturing create the image. And so if you think about that, you understand that lighting is the number one thing when it comes to, to what, what your image looks like. So if you want to, if you want to create something that looks extremely dynamic or something that looks just eye-catching, start with lighting because that is the number one thing. And, and even if there's light in the room, it doesn't matter. Maybe block some of the light out. Uh, just think about how can I creatively light this and like lighting, if you can learn that, you can learn that lighting is the number one thing when it comes to what an image looks like. And again, this goes back to gear doesn't matter as much as knowledge and skill because the knowledge and skill of understanding the importance of lighting and how to paint with it, that's what kind of gives you that that ability to know your craft and to know like, hey, it doesn't matter what camera we have, we're going to go in this room and we're going to light it in this certain way. And it doesn't matter if we use our iPhone, it's going to look good because of lighting. So that's my that's my third one. Number four is don't use slow motion as a crutch. Whew. When I got when I got my first 4K 60 camera, an FS7, uh, back in 2015, maybe 14, 15, somewhere around there, I was so excited. Oh my gosh, I got 4K 60, and I used the crap out of that thing. I shot 4K60 for everything. I loved it. But everything is slow motion because it looks cool, right? And <laughs> I look back at videos I was so proud of back then and I just kind of shake my head and cringe a little bit and I don't really want people to see them because it's nothing but slow motion. And it's not that the, the, the footage looks bad because it doesn't. It looks great. But the slow motion was how I told my story, right? And I used shots slowed down to kind of carry 
to carry one scene into the next. And I did that because I still hadn't really developed my script writing techniques or my script script writing understanding. Um, and, and back then, and I was using slow motion to make up for my lack of understanding of what to capture. I, I sometimes would come home with either not enough content or not the right content. And so I just slow things down to help essentially fill up time and make things look more dramatic. When at the end of the day, I was, I was just doing that because I didn't really understand how to shoot my stuff without it. And now... I don't use slow motion all that much. It's still really cool. I love slow motion. Slow motion is great. But I use it only when it contributes to the story or the commercial or the video in general in some form or fashion. It has to contribute in some way. There has to be a purpose or a or a reason for it. Otherwise, I don't use it. And I challenged myself back in like 2015 or 2016 to try to shoot everything without slow motion that I possibly could because I realized I was using it as a clutch. And so I started really challenging myself, like don't shoot, don't shoot this project with slow motion. Don't shoot it with slow motion. And so one project after another, after another, after another, I did without slow motion. And by doing that, it forced me to understand the, how to tell a story without crutches and how to say, all right, how can I, how can I make this go from one thing to the next and fill up the, the right amount of time and, and be able to do it in a dramatic or beautiful way, but without slow motion. And by challenging myself to do that, I learned so much more about storytelling and I kind of kicked that crutch. And now when I do put slow motion in something, I feel so proud of it because it's like, oh, wow, this is a great spot to have a slow motion shot. It looks great there. Um, and I don't cringe anymore. <laughs> and so I, it's something I, again, I, I wish I would have be able to tell myself back then is don't use slow motion as a crutch. It's a great tool. Um, but it shouldn't be your only tool. It should just be there as something you use when it contributes to your video in some way. Number five is don't update your editing software or your computer unless you absolutely have to. <laughs> I, uh, I was one of those guys that, uh, you know, Premiere would come out with a new update. Boom, let's update it. And my Mac would come out with a new update. It, boom, let's update it. And uh, I should have never done it because, you know, you hear the term, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. And I wish I would have, <laughs> I wish I would have listened to that because back in the day when I first got um, my current computer, I say back in the day, I've had a bunch of computers over the years, but I, I'm, my current models, I have a, a 2014 MacBook Pro as my portable system. And then I have a 2015 5K Retina iMac as my main editing system. And so I plan to get 10 years out of both of my computers and I'm getting close to 10 on my laptop and I'm about six years into my desktop and they're running great, but they don't run as great as they did when I first bought them. And I don't keep a lot of stuff on my computers. I keep everything on, um, on portable drives and I don't, I just, I don't do a lot of things on my computers to bog them down in any way. I keep them really clean. I keep the cache clean. Um, but what's slowed them down over the years is the constant updates. I had updated Premiere and I had updated my computers. And what ended up happening is 
uh, there were versions of Premiere that did not work as well with the you know with certain versions of uh, of uh, Apple software. And what ended up happening is <clears throat> I, I went from having a system that where the editing software and the computer talk to itself talk to each other really really well uh, to a system where they'll talk to each other but not as smoothly anymore. And at the end of the day, the only thing that changed was the updates. Um, and so my computer is still a really fast com- computer, but Premiere does not work as fast for me as it used to. And it's the reality is, in fact, not not near as fast as it used to. And the reality is, is because of the updates. Um, in fact, it got so slow at one point that I, I bought the studio version of DaVinci Resolve and started contemplating cutting all my projects on Resolve. I had been using Resolve for, as a color grading software for years, um, but I had thought about switching everything over Resolve because I got tired of how slow Premiere got. It's gotten a little better for me, so I haven't switched over. Um, but the reality is, is I could have avoided all of this if I just never would have updated either one. And so it might you might see a new feature or a new uh, option um, on a Mac software update or maybe a, a Premiere software update that might make you want to update your computer or update your version of Premiere or Final Cut or whatever it is you're working on. And you might want to update to get those features. Um, but I would highly suggest not if your computer and your editing program are talking to each other really well, and they aren't having any issues, leave it alone. Don't update because there's always the risk that you're going to get a couple of versions that just don't talk to each other really well, and it's going to slow everything down. And so I, if I could go back in time, I would go back to when I very first got this computer and I and and whatever version of Premiere I was running back then and I would not change a thing and I would leave them as they were because they were flying. Like you know whenever you drop for those of you who work in Premiere, you know when you drop uh, clips onto your timeline and they'll either be green, um, yellow or red, red meaning they need to be rendered. Um Yet green meaning that they either have been rendered or don't need to be rendered, and yellow meaning it's kind of on the fence. Well, my computer and Premiere were talking to each other so well that there were no bars, not even green. There was just nothing. It was so fast that when I would drop shots onto my timeline, there would literally not even be a green bar. It was just crazy fast. But now I drop stuff on there and it's just yellow all the time, and it's all because of the update because I haven't changed... I haven't changed really anything else. I'm still shooting a lot of the same codecs and stuff. It's just the updates. Um, So number five is don't update your editing software or computer unless you absolutely have to. And that's why. Number six is learn your gear before you use it on a paid shoot. (laughs) Um, I I wish I would have known that because I I, uh, have had a time or two when I was... Uh, younger where I got a fancy new piece of equipment and I really wanted to use it and I had a shoot coming up so I brought it out to the shoot and found out that there was something I didn't like about it or something I didn't understand about it <laughs> while on a paid shoot a great example of that is I had an I had an uh, uh, audio adapter back in the day when audio was a pain in the butt to capture for mirrorless or DSLR cameras and I had bought this Beach Tech audio adapter it's like 10 years ago, maybe something like that. And I had t- taken it to, I had taken it with me on a paid project 
and uh, I didn't know all the settings on it because I'd just gotten it. And I thought that everything was recording into the audio adapter really well. And I, I felt confident about what I was capturing. And I got home and all the audio was ruined. And it was ruined because there was this buzzing noise that I could not remove that was in the audio. And that buzzing noise was there because I didn't have a setting set correctly. And it was because I didn't understand the, all the settings because I just got this fancy new piece of equipment and I drug it with me to a shoot. <laughs> but if I would have learned it first before I took it on a, on a paid shoot, that wouldn't have happened. So it was completely my fault and it was not fixable, unfortunately. Um, fortunately, I did have a shotgun mic on another camera and I used it for the audio for the interview, but it was terrible. Because if you know anything about uh, using a gun mic for, for audio, I mean, if you're gonna use a, if you're gonna use a gun mic, it needs to be on a boom and it needs to be like right above the person, not 10 feet away. <laughs> <laughs> it sounded terrible, uh, but it was the only audio I had, and, and I did my best to make it sound halfway decent, and client was like, whatever, it worked for them, but I was embarrassed about it. It was my fault, it was because I... I didn't learn my gear before I went on the shoot. So I wish I would have I wish I would be able to go back and tell myself that because there are a couple of other times where I've done that, where I've shown up to a shoot without knowing my gear. I don't do that anymore. Uh, when I first got my Movi M5 gimbal, I didn't take it on a shoot with me for a whole year. Sounds crazy, right? But my Movi, that's a that was a kind of a complicated gimbal and I I love it. I still I still work with my Movi today. I think it's great. Uh but I wanted to really understand it before I took it on a shoot because I didn't want to look like an idiot. And I'm glad I did because I, I, once I spent some time with it and I truly learned it, then the first project I took it on, um, I crushed it. So learn the gear before you use it on a paid shoot. That's number six for me. Number seven is only buy gear you can afford for clients you already have. The reason why I say this is because it's really easy to fall in the trap of, all right, I'm going to get all of this gear, or maybe it's just one piece of gear. Maybe it's a really expensive camera. I'm going to get this really expensive camera, and I'm going to finance it, and I want it because I think it's going to help me get other jobs with other clients. Clients I don't have yet, but I'll get them, and I'll get, get these types of jobs once I have this camera. And, and I see this all the time. People I know that will buy cameras or things that they can't afford, that they can't buy at that moment with cash, and they'll do it because they think they need it, and they think that if they get it, they'll be able to do all these different types of jobs. And most of the time, it doesn't work out for them. And that was me. Man, I did that. Um, not with a camera, but I had all these things I wanted, and I financed a bunch of it. And it took me a long time to pay all that financing stuff off. And the reason I financed it was because I didn't have the cash for it. I didn't have the cash for it because I didn't have the clients for it. But I thought if I had these certain things, I'd be able to get clients. And and all I just I just had to get it. Once I got it, I'd get the kind of clients that would pay for it, and then I'd be good to go. So I'll just finance it for now. <laughs> and that is it. That is a trap you can get into. I finance like a handful of things, and it took me a while to pay it all off. And the truth is, is I didn't have the clients to support it. Now, if I buy gear, I only buy gear that's I tr that's truly going to help me for types of clients I already have. Like when I went to buy my FX6, 
I, I had an FS7 Mark II and I loved it and um, I had used it for years, but I needed something different and I had reasonings for why I needed something different and uh, it was time to make a change and I had the jobs and the clients that would support me changing that to an FX6 and I had the cash for it because I had a lot of jobs lined up and a lot of deposits in. So I took some money from that and I bought it with cash and it was great, you know, and I, I had the jobs and the, and the finances to support that investment. Um, and so it was a smart move. Um, and it was way different than when I was younger and I financed stuff that I just quite frankly, um, couldn't afford at the time, which is why I had to finance it. <laughs> and again, I, I got this stuff thinking it would help me get jobs and, and it wasn't the case. And I, I have friends that will take out massive loans, huge loans. I'm talking way into the six figures to get all kinds of equipment thinking that, oh, I just, I have to get all this stuff. What I have may work, but I just have to get all this stuff. And once I get it, then I'll be good to go. And then think about all the clients I'll get once I get all this stuff. And guys, that just, just a lot of times, I would say by far the vast majority of the time that doesn't happen. Now, I can't even count how many people I know that bought a red, invested in a red and financed a red and had to end up selling it because they they weren't getting the clients to support it and they didn't have the clients to support it to begin with. So they bought the red though, thinking they would get those clients and it didn't work out for them. And just, I see that all the time. I was guilty of it um, with certain things um, when I was getting started and it's just something I wish I would have known because the reality is you should only buy things that are going to actually benefit you in that, in that time period for the types of clients you actually have and, and buy it only if you can afford it. You know, don't, don't buy it financing it or thinking that you can get it. I mean, it's okay to finance something if you've got like the work lined up for it. But don't buy and finance thinking that one day you'll be able to get clients to pay it off because it just doesn't work that way. Number eight is contracts and deposits protect relationships. Even if it's your best friend, contracts and deposits protect relationships and will protect your relationship with your best friend. Protect your relationship with anybody. Um, I, I used to be, when I was younger and I was getting into video, um, I used to be of the impression that a handshake was good enough for most things, especially if I knew the people I was working with or if I felt comfortable around them when I met with them. Oh, yeah, yeah, they'll, you know, I'll do this for them and, and they'll pay me at this, this rate and at this point. And there are a lot of hurt feelings that happened over the years and a lot of relationships that got ruined over that. Um, and now... Everybody, I don't care if it's my dad, everybody I work with gets a contract from me and pays a deposit to me. And the reason being is because I don't want there to be any gray area. It doesn't matter who I'm doing business with. I want it to be outlined what it is I'm doing and what it is I'm getting in return and what kind of timeline we're looking at for payment and for me to deliver something. And we're lining and spelling everything out so that if there's ever any question, we can look at the contract. It's right there. And if, if, if I feel like, hey, you know, they haven't held up their end of the deal, they're behind on payment, and they question me, I can point to the contract, and they can't argue it. And, says, and they, all they can do is say, yep, you're right, sorry, I'll pay you. 
or if, if vice versa, if they're like, hey, like you said, you were going to deliver this in, in four weeks, and it's been eight weeks now, and it's right there in the contract. You said you'd deliver it in four, and, and I can't argue with that. I'll look at it and say, you're right. I messed up. I apologize. How can I make it right? You know, and that's, that's the reality is that contracts protect relationships, and so do deposits because it's one thing to sign a piece of paper or sign a document saying that you're going to do a job. It's another to sign a document and put a down payment down. That's kind of how you really lock something in. So contracts and deposits protect relationships, even if it's someone that you've done business with in the past. And you, like I've have had clients when I was younger that are still clients of mine today that we didn't have contracts and deposits back then. And I had to ask them for them moving forward. Um, and I thought they're going to be offended. Like, oh, why does he want a contract now? Does he not trust us or something? Um, but rea- the reality was they were like, sure, yeah, let's have a contract. I've always kind of wondered why we didn't have one. You know, and that that truly is been has been kind of the response. So contracts and deposits uh, protect relationships. And it doesn't matter who you're doing business with. Um, it just kind of keeps everyone honest and it keeps it keeps all the gray area out of it so that everyone knows what they need to do and when they need to do it. And it just, man, it just protects your relationship. And at the end of the day, like this business, the video business is all about relationships. So if you can do something like that to protect a relationship, that's a small thing that will go a long way. And uh, the number nine thing for me is don't be afraid to lose a potential client. Um, Yes, I just on, on a minute ago said that relationships are the most important aspect of this business, and that is true. But you also shouldn't be afraid to give up a bad client or to lose a potential client. Um, and I've done both. I've, I've had clients that were not good to do business with, and I knew that, but I kept doing business with them because I wanted their money. Um, and then there, it, you know, at the end of the day, it, it just didn't go well, uh, and and things didn't end well, and it was my fault because I knew, hey, this is not a good client for me. I should I should cut them out, but I chose not to because I like their money, <laughs> and so I continued to do business with them, and I, I shouldn't have been afraid to lose them. I should have let them go. If they're not a good client for you, let them go. And same thing goes with potential clients. It's easy to be afraid to lose a client because maybe you know someone's reached out to you and they want to do a job but you're afraid you're going to price your work too high or you're afraid that um they're not going to like your contract or they're not going to like something and you're afraid that <clears throat> you're afraid that you're going to lose the opportunity to do business with them and so it might be easy to say you know what I'm just going to do it for this price and maybe it's not the price you want but you do that cuz you're afraid to lose them or maybe you know they want something turned around in a week, and you don't think you can turn it around in a week, but you agree to it just because it's like oh, I just really want the work, and so you agree to it. Um, and but then you know four days into it, you're like, why did I do this? This was stupid. I'm pulling all these all nighters to turn this thing around. <laughs> and so the reality is, is you shouldn't be afraid to lose a potential client. There's always another one out there, and that's so hard. And I know that because I've been there. When you're grinding and you're trying to make a living, it is so hard to just say, "Well, I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm willing to lose this person." That's hard because, I mean, it, it's tough to to let a potential business opportunity go, especially if you're, you know, if you're starting out. 
and maybe you're hungry, you know, and you, you, you need that money. But at the same time, like getting a bad client or, or doing something uh, at a price you don't want to do it at um, or, or agreeing to do something you wouldn't normally do just to get a client is never a good thing. And I wish I would have known that when I was younger because um, there were a lot of times, like I said, where I, I didn't let a client go because even though they weren't a good fit for me, I just didn't want to lose their money. Or maybe I agreed to do something that I knew I shouldn't agree to, but I did it because I didn't want, I was afraid of losing them. Um, so at the end of the day, don't be afraid to lose a client. If you know <clears throat> that they're not good for you, let them go. And if it's a potential new client um, and you know what your price is, you know, is at and you know what you want or you know what terms or conditions you want, stick to that. And and if they if, if they don't like it, don't be afraid of losing them. Just know what you need to do and be willing to to stand up to stand up for yourself and don't be afraid to lose them. It's okay. Number 10 and the last on my list is learn the importance of boundaries. Um, this goes in a couple different directions and this is a huge one. Um, if I was going to pick a second one to go toward the top, if I was again going to order these, this one will be up there uh, pretty close to the uh, gear doesn't matter as much as knowledge and skill one. Uh, and the reason why I say that is because boundaries in video and the video business is huge. Boundaries in any business or any job is huge. Um, but when you're in a service industry like this, um, you need to learn how to create boundaries. And that was something when I was younger, I was really not good at doing. Um, and, and here are some examples of boundaries. I would work way more hours than I should have. I'd put in 80 plus hour weeks sometimes. I remember when I was dating my wife, all the time, I would say, hey, I can't go out with you until like eight or nine o'clock at night. And we would go on dates from like eight or nine o'clock. They would start at eight or nine o'clock and we wouldn't get done. We wouldn't get off our date to like midnight or one in the morning because we wouldn't get started till so late. But it was because I just, you know, I, I, I was like making myself do all these things and get all these things done or I was wanting to stay up and learn how to do something video related or maybe I was doing something for a client or whatever else. And I wouldn't put a boundary there. And so I was always working. I was always up doing something for someone. Um, and, and there was just no healthy boundary there. Um, same thing would go with like taking phone calls. I, I know there are people out there that think that you should return an email or a phone call within, you know, 24 hours. Doesn't matter if it's holidays or weekends. I'm not one of those guys. Um, that's just not me. I've, I've learned that it is extremely important to have boundaries. So on weekends, unless I'm on a shoot, which sometimes I do book shoots on the weekends, I have a shoot this coming Sunday at a church because I have no choice because I have to film at a church. And the, the whole, that's the whole point because I'm doing a video to help a, a church that's planning a new church and I've got to capture footage at a, a service. Um, and Sunday's when it's going to happen. So I, I will work weekends if a shoot falls on a weekend, or maybe I'm out of town and I'm out of state. Maybe I'm in Alaska and I'm on a shoot, you know, and it's going to happen on weekends. I get that. But outside of that, I don't work weekends. I don't respond to emails on weekends, and I don't respond to phone calls on weekends. When my clock says 5 o'clock on a Friday, I'm done. And again, if there's a shoot, it's different. But outside of that, I'm done. You you email me and you want me to send you something or you want to ask me about something, you'll hear from me Monday morning. Um, I created that boundary. I've created a boundary in my work days. I work uh, eight to five now. 
And, and if I'm on a shoot, that's different. If I'm on a shoot, obviously you might get somewhere super early in the morning or might be out late. That's different. Um, and that's just part of being in this business. There's no way around that. But when it comes to editing, when it comes to uh, picking up the phone or when it comes to responding to emails or anything outside of like being on a shoot, um, I am working Monday through Friday, eight to five. And I take an hour lunch break and that's what I do. And I treat it like I would if I was at a job elsewhere. And you know what? It has made me so much happier because I have these boundaries. And I know like come five o'clock, you know, I can get off and have a beer and hang out with my wife and do something around the house. And, and you know, we're, we're having a baby next month and I'm going to be able to hang out with a kid and, and play with a kiddo. And it's just going to be great. And it's all because I created that boundary several years ago and it's just made my life my life a lot healthier and a lot happier, um, and I'm not stressing in the evenings because I picked up a phone call at eight o'clock at night um, that didn't go the way I wanted to, or maybe that put some kind of a, a turnaround time that I was worried about. None of that, none of that matters. All that can wait till the next day. I don't do anything after five unless I'm on a shoot. And similarly, um, in addition to like just times of like answering phone calls and emails and stuff like that. The other ways that I, I, I think that you can have boundaries are like if a customer asks you to do something and you feel it's outside of what you're contractually obligated to do, have boundaries. You know, if I'm on a shoot, like this happened a couple years ago, I was on a shoot. I was, I was paid to do a series of videos for a client and the client said to me, you know, when we were on location, Hey, while you're here, I also want to do a bunch of photography. I want to get all these different product photos and all this other stuff. And I had to tell them, I said, well, we can do that. Um, but that's outside of the contract. So it's going to come at a different price. And I remember them getting a little upset and they were like, well, what the heck you're here. Why don't, why can't you just shoot a bunch of photos for me? And I said, well, you know, that's a different product. Uh, you hired me for video as per the contract and as per the contract, anything outside of that comes at a different price. So you're asking about photography now, which is different than the video services you hired me for. It's a different product. It's going to take more time while I'm here. Plus I'm going to have to go home and edit those photos and all that time is valuable. So I can do it for you, but it's a separate product and it's going to come at a separate price. And here's the price for that. And I created a boundary and then moving forward, every time after that, that client understood if they wanted to do something, there's a boundary there. And they would call and say, hey, how much would it cost to do this? Or how much would it cost to do that? And it's because I created a boundary. You got to do that. Because if you don't create a boundary and you just say, yeah, sure, I'll do photos, then what's it going to be next? Because next, because you might think, oh, but Josh, it's no big deal. Just take some photos. Come on, make the customer happy. That would be, that's easy to say, right? But the problem is, is by not putting a boundary there, you don't know where, where it's going to stop. Because now, now if you agree to do a handful of photos, what's next? Are they going to say, oh, you did photos for me last time. I really like that. On this one, I'd like to do some more photos. Um, but I'd also like for you to, in addition to the photos, I'd like for you to do this. Or I'd like for you to do that. And they could tack on a bunch of other stuff. I'd like for you to add another video or shoot an interview for me or whatever else. And now you're doing all this work for free because they're taking advantage of you. And it might be like they, they don't think they're taking advantage of you and they might not be doing it to be mean or anything, but it's just they think it's okay because you never put a boundary there. Boundaries 
kind of like contracts and deposits, they protect relationships too. Because if you put a boundary in there and they know like, hey, this person won't do a job for me without a deposit. Or, hey, this person is only doing video for me, not photography. If we want to do photography, that's separate. If we want to do uh, a turnaround time that's, you know, by this date, it might cost a little bit more. Like, if you put boundaries like that in there, then they know what to expect when working with you. And that's healthy. That's not a bad thing. It's a healthy thing. And it protects it protects both of you, really. In the long run, it protects both of you. Um, because and, and there are other boundaries, like like a client might, like, oh, I remember I had a client one time for a music video. <laughs> they they wanted to hire me to do a music video, and they asked how many days I thought it would take to shoot the video. And I said, um, and we had talked about what all shots we needed. And I said, well, with all these shots and all these set changes, I think it's going to take two days. And the client said, well, I don't want to do two days. I just want to pay for one day. Um, he's like, because uh, two days would be getting a little expensive. And I was like, well, all right. If you only want to do one day, then fine. Well, I didn't put a boundary there on what a day was. So guess what? I shot a 20-hour day, me and my grip and my wife, plus the set designer, plus the actors, were all there for 20 hours, 20 hours straight. So tired. Started at 6 in the morning one morning and got done at, what is that, like 2 o'clock the next morning. And in, in my client's mind, it's like, hey, we got it done in one day. <laughs> and technically, he was correct. It was in one 24-hour day. But if I would have put a boundary there and said, yep, one day consists of eight hours or 10 hours or whatever else, then he would have known what that was. And he, I didn't put a clear boundary and he took advantage of me. And, and I, I, again, I don't think it was any ill intent. It's just, I didn't put a boundary there. So in their mind or in his mind, as long as he kept it within 24 hours, we were good. And Dude, it sucked. It was brutal. And now in my contracts, I def clearly define what a day is. <laughs> but the point is, is you got to have boundaries. If, if a client says, hey, I that video you shot for me, I want to turn around by the end of the week, but you don't think you can do that or maybe... Um, you want you know all your jobs to have like a four or six week turnaround time. Make sure they know that up front. Create boundaries, and if they reach out to you and say, "Hey, I want that in a week," you can say, "Hey, I told you up front it was going to be four weeks, so we got to keep it at four weeks." Like, just create boundaries because boundaries will keep you sane. They will protect relationships, and they will allow you to be able to go home and have free time, spend time with your wife, time with the kids, and not be thinking about work when you get home. And that's a good, healthy lifestyle that will keep you from getting burned out. So those are 10 things that I wish I would have known when starting a video business. And I can have a lot more than this. And maybe I'll do a follow-up podcast in a few weeks or a month or two that will be 10 more things I wish I would have known when starting a video business. But these are 10 things that came to mind that I thought I'd talk about today. If you have any questions or comments about anything I mentioned today, um, let me know. Uh, hop on to the Filming with Josh Facebook group and, and po post your question or comment there. Or feel free to email me at josh at rusticriver.media. And again, guys, be, feel free to join the Filming with Josh Facebook group. I'd love to see you there. And I'll catch you guys next week on episode number 43. See you then. To learn more about Rustic River Media, visit us online at rusticriver.media. Thanks for listening to the Filming with Josh podcast. 
catch every episode by hitting subscribe today.